You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, can I invite you to turn to Leviticus chapter 23, the passage that David read for us at the start. And we're going to focus in on this passage together today during this uh, month of Thanksgiving. Um, And again, we want to say a sincere word of thanks to Heather Cole for decorating the church so tastefully, especially in the circumstances and uh, to keep all of this so fresh uh, over these weeks, over these four weeks that we're celebrating uh, together. Leviticus chapter 23. Before I uh, turn to God's word, I wanted to say something. I have a friend who either every Saturday night or every Sunday morning, he sends me a message. He's not a pastor. He's not a minister. He is a regular friend. And he always sends a little message to say he's praying for me and he's praying for the congregations here. And I want to pray with you the prayer that he wrote for me today because he prayed it in the light of us meeting as a congregation of Union Road today. So let me pray it for us before we turn to God's word. I pray for God's spirit to move in the preaching of God's word. The blind eyes would see, the deaf ears would hear, and those who are his would desire to walk closer with the Lord by the end of our service together as we come in Jesus' name. Amen. The whole of Leviticus chapter 23 is a chapter that outlines for us the significant days in the Jewish calendar. Just as many of us maybe look ahead when we get a calendar for 2021, some of us might want to say, I wonder when Easter falls next year. Or for those of you who are younger and not so young, you want to check out, I wonder what day my birthday falls on next year. And what is it about when your birthday falls at a weekend, you feel that little bit more excited? Or is it just me? Anyway, the festival of weeks was a harvest celebration that took place 50 days after the first sheaf was gathered and brought before God in what's outlined for us in verses 9 to 14. Do you see it there? The first fruits are outlined there. On that particular day, the priest was to bring the sheaf that had been taken from the first cut, and it was to be waved before God in verse 11. So it would have looked something like this. The priest would have gone into the harvest and taken the very first cut and gone into the tabernacle temple and literally done this before God, recognizing that God had provided for them the first cut of the harvest. It was a mark, as it were, of thanksgiving of another year's hard labor out in the fields. The waving of the first fruits triggered the start of the harvest season, which concluded with the festival of weeks at the end of the harvest. And as we often sing at this time of year, it was a little bit like when all is safely gathered in. Or to use a more familiar expression around Mid-Ulster, when everything was read up. And that's where we're at today in Leviticus 23, when everything was read up at the end of the harvest season, when God's people are urged to stop and give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Just two things for us today to remember, and here's the first one. Let's begin by looking into this harvest celebration. Let's begin by looking into this harvest celebration. It was only going to be one day. Deuteronomy chapter 16 tells us that. But it was to be a day that was to be marked out by the end of the reaping. 
Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 and 17 reminds us it was the end and it was just the one-day celebration. The new grain was to come in before God. It was to be a visible demonstration for him to see and the congregation reminded of all God's good gifts. The harvest had been gathered. There was to be food on the tables and God was to be praised. Now, I remember the harvest service that I attended probably 20 years ago now. The children in the church I was attending at the time played a key role as it had been organized by the Sunday school. And every child, and this is significant, every single child was to bring something forward to a table at the front that related to harvest to thank God for his goodness. Now, that all sounds very sweet, doesn't it? Until you add in a little song that goes along for each child as they were to bring up every item. And be mindful, this was not a small congregation I'm talking about. Let me give you an example. So up comes James, I think was the first one. And the leaders began to sing and tried to get the whole congregation to join in. Very unsuccessfully, I might add. And it went like this. Someone's brought a tin of beans. Someone's brought a tin of beans. Someone's brought a tin of beans to bring to the harvest table. That was all well and good. But then Carrie gets up. Someone's brought a loaf of bread. Someone's brought a loaf of bread. Someone, which was all very good until you go 45 later. And it's very hard when someone picks an item that doesn't fit into the melody or the tune. Someone's brought a bag of carrots. Someone's brought a bag of carrots. And the wee fellow brought the packet of crisps. Well, he had no mission fitting that in. And so it went on until I thought we'd be singing a little town of Bethlehem by the time we'd got everyone to the front with their item. But you know, smiling all as we did that day, I remember looking around and glancing to that harvest table as I walked out. And it suddenly struck me, look at all that stuff. Every item was different. Every item reflected something that was in the more than average home. It was a terrible song, but it was a wonderful visual aid. And I went away saying to myself, our God is good, and his love endures forever. And that was something of the idea behind this Old Testament festival, as they held this day of rejoicing as a result of the reaping. Look at verse 21 in our Bibles. It says here, the workforce was to stop and celebrate. Everything else was to stop. There was to be no work that day carried out. And in Deuteronomy 16, verse 11, we read on that same day, the people were to rejoice before the Lord, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, the foreigners, the fatherless, the widows living among you. Everyone was called to rejoice. Without exception, everyone came to rejoice. The day began with the priest, this time not waving one of these, but on this occasion, waving two of these. Two bread rolls. Where do we wave before God to show that was the start, but this is what God produces. It's all thanks to him that we have food on our table. And that was to be waved before God as a means of saying, very simply, thank you. And so for us today, as we stand in such uncertain times, is it not right for us also to stop at this harvest season? 
In all our frustration, in all our railing against governments going too far, our governments not going far enough, in all our anxiety and worries and concerns and confusions, not see that our God has not been toppled off his throne. Our God has provided for us once again on yet another harvest season. Our God is good. Today, as you lift that fork or lift that slice of bread to pop it in the toaster, Stop and give thanks, for you have more than three quarters of the world will have today. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For those of us who are farmers here today, that very first cut that you took, every blade of grass that you've cut over this season, every inch of that has been a gift from our God for your good. And so we rejoice. And we're not asked today to bring bulls and rams and goats, these offerings and sacrifices, what we call sin offerings and fellowship offerings before God. But rather, let's take time today to stop and say, sorry, Lord. I'm so sorry, Lord, for presuming upon water in my taps, presuming that there'll be food in my fridge. Forgive me for getting cross when my favorite sauce is not stocked on the shelves of JC's, or we've run out of our favorite cereal, and we go about the house thinking, well, why don't we do it last week? Let's acknowledge our sins of presumption and expectation that cause us inwardly to doubt God's good reputation. Rather than let this, rather let this reaping lead us to a rejoicing, which in turn leads us to a remembering. Look at verse 22. It's a really important verse. Without this verse, we would not have Jesus. Let me say it again. Without verse 22, we would not have Jesus. For verse 22 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. I'll explain what I mean by that statement in just a moment. We are to praise God for his provision toward us. But from the earliest days of God's gathered people, we were to make provision for the poor. The farmer was not to lift what he had missed the first time round. He was reaping to feed his family, but there were also others in society who did not have fields or families as a means of support. It was a God-given principle illustrated most clearly for us in the Old Testament book of Ruth, where Ruth the Moabite S accompanies her mother-in-law Naomi. Remember the story? They go back to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest, and Ruth's husband, an Israelite, had died in their home place. Whilst Naomi's husband and two sons had died as they had sought refuge at a time of famine in the land of Israel. Both were widowed. Ruth was now a despised foreigner. Without a penny to her name, Ruth embarks on gathering whatever leftovers are lying around the fields of Bethlehem. And she benefits from this Old Testament law established at a time of plenty in Leviticus 23 to supply the food for those without anything. So let me come back to this statement. Without this verse in Leviticus, we would not have had our Savior. If Boaz had not been faithful in leaving these little bits of gleanings around the edge of the field... Ruth would never have been kept alive and the Savior Jesus would never have been born because Ruth was Jesus' great, 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 great grandmother. This is important. This is not some, oh, let's help out the poor. This is not some rattle-the-box charity collection. This is vital for the people of God to grasp this morning. 
As it happens, Ruth finds herself gleaning in the field of a man who was a close relative of Naomi's. His name was Boaz, and he insisted that the harvesters left what they could, and they offered it to keep Ruth and Naomi fed. It's a beautiful picture of a generous man. It's a description of how things are meant to be in community, how we as God's people are to be freely given because we have received so much. In fact, it's a portrait and miniature of how God provides for us, his people. None of us deserve any of this, beans or carrots or crisps or sirloin steaks, whatever you would bring to the harvest table. For from the core of our being, we doubt and debate God and distrust God, and we're often distracted from God. Maybe even as some of our farmers watching are here today, it's easy for us to pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, well, we're fairly self-made, we're fairly self-sufficient, we've managed it again this year. No, you haven't. God has given you every blade of grass, every ounce of energy, every drop of rain to fall, every glimpse of sunshine to make the crops grow. You have not done that. He has done it all. And God has absolutely no reason to preserve our lives due to our sin of denying him and his goodness. And yet he sends the sunshine and rain on believers and unbelievers alike, all God-given. But like Boaz to Ruth, an Israelite to a Moabite, foreigner, God who is rich in mercy, provides for our bodies but also supplies what we need for our souls. He opens the storehouses of his love and says, come and eat with me and share in everything that is mine. Boaz opens his fields, he opens his hands, he opens his heart, and eventually opens his home to Ruth, and he redeems her. He buys her quite literally out of poverty and destitution and makes her his much-loved bride. And what Ruth found from Boaz, what did Boaz do? He urged Ruth to find in the Lord. It's on the screen now, Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth had no claims. She was a foreigner. She was a Moabitess. She came to Bethlehem bankrupt, nothing to offer. And yet Boaz made this first move. He welcomes her with grace and acceptance, and she came to share in all his blessings and provisions. God makes the first move towards us. His eyes have fallen upon us, not because we offer him everything, but because we have nothing. He makes us safe and he draws us in, and he hides us under the shelter of his wings, those gentle, strong, saving arms of Christ, whose cross and whose blood are our shelter, our refuge, and our redemption. It's interesting, isn't it, this image of the bird and the wings as a picture of God sheltering his people? You can just see that picture of the newborn chicks snuggling in, hiding away from the rough and tumble of the wind and the predators and the rain. The mother bird loving them unconditionally, protecting them with her own life. For if other birds or beasts were attacked, these little ones, they have to face, they have to go through her first. This mother bird will literally die to save and protect her little ones. All oh, friends, remember this Jesus. Hide away in his love, for he is the one who did die to protect us. Keep us, to shelter us. And having explained his love, we are called upon to exhibit that same selfless love towards others. We are to be at the forefront in our community of protecting the foreigner, looking out for the poor, welcoming the stranger, those who might even be described as our enemies. 
that they might find their shelter in the same Christ that we have found shelter under. And so we've looked into this wonderful day, this feast of weeks that leads us to reap, rejoice, and remember. But one last thing, the second and last thing that we are to see on this day that fits into God's calendar and is the most significant thing I want to leave with us today is to look ahead to everything God has promised. These verses enable us to look ahead to everything that God has promised. Let's just kneel something down. If you haven't got your Bible, you've closed your Bible, open it up again now. Leviticus 23, because I'm going to rattle through it, and you're going to see God's calendar and how that helps us see what Christ has done for us. Leviticus 23, verses 4 to 8. That's known as the Feast of the Passover. Very famous. Once a year, the Israelites were to recall that great day of deliverance from their slave masters in Egypt, where they'd been battered and bruised and subjected to fear and torture and ethnic cleansing and brutality. But God intervened on the night before they escaped, and they were told to bake bread that had no yeast in it, and they were to be ready for the journey in the next day. They were to kill a perfect spotless lamb and paint its blood on the door frames under which they were to find protection. And as the angel of judgment flew over Egypt that night, it killed every firstborn son in every home who did not display the blood. And whilst those with the blood, the angel of death, passed over, hence the name, the Passover. Israel was saved. Their enemy slave masters, they were now freed from forever, all because of the blood of this helpless lamb. But a day later in the Jewish calendar, an annual feast was to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. That's what verses 9 to 14 in Leviticus remind us. That's when all the, the sheaf waving was to be done. The death of the animal had saved them, but in a, within a day, they were then to celebrate the first fruits, the start of new life, the beginning of the harvest. But we're not done yet. 50 days later, we come to the very day we're focusing on today in Leviticus 23, 15 to 22, the day when the harvest was safely gathered in and the whole community gathered to rejoice, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest. Okay, you say, very interesting history lesson, David, but what's that got to do with me? Everything. Why? Because fast forward 1,500 years and look into the New Testament and you get exactly the same order. Jesus, the Passover lamb, dies for our sins at Passover, at the feast of the Passover, on Good Friday. The perfect, sinless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world dies on Good Friday at Passover. His blood is shed for the protection of his people. What comes next? The day of the first fruits, the first cut of the harvest, the crop that bursts forth and is ready for the harvest. And so too, Jesus Christ emerges from the grave. And Paul described him. You can look these verses up later for yourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 20 to 23. Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. How is he described? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so this comes out again. The first cut. The first cut of the harvest. Who was the first cut of the spiritual harvest? Jesus, who was dead, now brings life. 
So everyone who comes after trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection to eternal life will be like the harvest that follows Jesus for generations, centuries after, and we are benefiting from that day. Jesus was the first cut. We are the harvest that follows if we're trusting in Jesus Christ. We too share in the first fruits of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Oh, how my heart bursts at this. This, this is a game changer, folks. This changes everything. For so many of us here in Union Road have lost loved ones to death. So many of us have concerns about death. But oh, if they, if we were perturbed, let us see again today that Christ has been raised and his resurrection is like a huge wave of sheaves before us today. Jesus, I can see it in my mind. Jesus, the first fruits. And then I can see 1999, my dad dies. But I know he'll be raised. 2005, 2015, I look back and all the significant moments when loved ones have died in my life. But I know because Jesus was the first fruits. They're part of the harvest. I'm no farmer, but I'm delighted with that harvest. I'm thrilled. And one day I'm going to be cut down, but I'll be raised up too, all because of the first fruits. As in Adam, all die. But in Christ, we'll be alive. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though they die. And it doesn't end there, folks. Because 50 days after the feast of the first fruits comes this feast, this feast of harvest, this feast of weeks. 50 days after Jesus rose again. And some of you are beginning to do the mass and beginning to work this out. 50 days later, the Greek word for 50 is pente, from which we get Pentecost. 50 days after Jesus rises again, the Holy Spirit comes into the hearts and lives of every believer. Isn't that incredible? There were thousands in Jerusalem that day of Pentecost. Why were they there? Because it was the Feast of Weeks. It was the Feast of Harvest. They were all there celebrating the, the harvest. People from every corner of the Roman Empire. But that day, as God descended to his disciples in the form of his Holy Spirit, God spoke through his people in that place in the day of Pentecost. There was no distinction between Jew and Gentile. You know what? The two that were waved before God had now become one. One in Christ. One through faith in Christ. And they were all able to hear the wonders of God in their own language. Every believer was enabled to speak of Christ, of God's grace, sharing good news for men and women, young and old, every nation under heaven. Boys and girls, if you are six or seven or eight here today and you trust in Jesus, you are filled with God's Holy Spirit. You can tell others about Jesus. And if you're 88 today and you love the Lord, you are filled with God's Spirit and you are able to share the wonders of the same God as well. No distinction. Men or women, old or younger, Jew or Gentile, no distinction. 
all filled with his Spirit, all desirous to reap a harvest of those who trust Christ. And they all had one theme in mind, rejoice the wonders of God. That was the theme of the whole day. The wonders of God. The wonders of what God had done. The inner music of their souls went straight up to heaven. Do you remember the difference? Fifty days before, that same group of disciples were sitting in a room that was, where the doors were bolted. They were scared stiff. Every creak on the floorboards, their hearts were pounding because they thought they were about to be arrested and crucified like their Savior Jesus. They were petrified. They were weak. They were terrified. But then comes the resurrection. And then comes the Holy Spirit. And then they burst out with thankfulness. And the word goes out from them everywhere. One of the most memorable figures of the great Welsh revival is a character I've read about recently. He's a chap called Billy Bray. Great name. And he wasn't a pastor. He was a coal miner in the Welsh valleys. And lots of people in the Welsh valleys during that time when the, the revivals and wheels amongst the churches began to place were really struggling. Pits were closing. Finance was poor. Things were difficult. We think we've got things bad today. We haven't got anything on what those Welsh miners had over a century ago. But there was one meeting he went to where everyone was complaining. Everyone was moaning. Everyone was whinging about the state of affairs in the Welsh mines and the valleys. He arose smiling and clapping, and he got everyone's attention. And he says, Well, friends, I have been taking vinegar and honey, but praise the Lord, I have had the vinegar with a spoon and the honey with a ladle. I think that's brilliant. All of us are going to go through the vinegar bits of life, the bits that sting, the bits that taste sour. But folks, we are the most privileged people in all of human history. You have more in your homes than your predecessors, your ancestors, one generation, two generations, three generations. You have far more. I have far more than they have ever had. So who are we to complain about a little inconvenience here and there when God honeys and ladles it out Day after 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 day. He has blessed us immeasurably. We all taste the vinegar of life and it stings and it's sour. But when we stop and consider the gifts of God, he has poured out ladle after ladle after ladle of God's sweetest honeyed gifts, not least his son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior, who is the sweetest and most precious gift. In 2013, a little-known Belgian artist called Delphine Boel suddenly discovered that her father might well be the king of Belgium after her mother revealed that she had had an affair with the king back in the 1960s. Following DNA tests and a very long legal battle, it has been confirmed that Delphine is King Albert's daughter. And she is now in the process of acclaiming her royal titles, such as Her Royal Highness, much against the king wishes in the courts of Belgium. Here is a princess who has battled for nearly 10 years to be recognized as royalty as a child of the king. We can see her on the screen just now. But here's the thing that strikes me most. Here is a king reluctant to bestow upon his daughter 
the rights of royalty. But friends, we need not wrestle the name of our God because he gifts us. He gifts us his spirit. He gifts us forgiveness. He gifts us resurrection. He gifts us the first fruits. He gifts us everything. For we don't have to prove ourselves. The spirit of the living God now lives in us. We are children of God with Jesus as our saving older brother and God as a providing heavenly father. We are children of a great providing and protecting king. Like the disciples on the day of Pentecost, like the Israelites on the same day for hundreds of years before, and every follower of our Lord Jesus Christ today, we are called upon to rejoice as a result of the reaping and remembering the wonders of our God.